All right, how's everyone today? Good? All right, uh, I hope everyone's doing well. Um, just as Ron introduced, my name is Eugene. Uh, I serve as a volunteer staff with Emmaus, and for those of, for those of you who don't know me, I am not a student. <laughs> so, like, a lot of times, like, when the semester starts, a lot of people are like, oh, so how old are you? Or, like, what are you studying? I'm like, no, 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 I, I graduated, like, a long, long, long time ago. Um, so it's definitely my honor and privilege to share the word with you all today. But uh, really, um, kind of like what you guys don't know about me is I'm, I'm a vivid external processor. And so when I start, like, talking, I'll go on and on and on and on, right? But... Like, a lot of people think I just don't talk at all, but it's because people don't really ask me questions. Um, and so, like, I think I hold the record for holding a four-hour familia. And so, yeah. <laughs> hey, got you. Uh, <laughs> so I'm going to try and stick to the script uh, so that I don't, like, go over my time. Um, you know, we don't want to pull a Rona. <laughs> try and get you out here on time. Um, but yeah, the last time I preached was actually on the missions field, and I was in Thailand, and it was pretty cool, because I was, like, preaching in this Buddhist temple, and, like, it was all these, like, elementary school students, but I broke my ankle, like, right when I started preaching, (laughs) and so, yeah, the story of how I did that is, like, a pragmatic example of how foolishness will kill you, um, but I'm not going to talk about that. Uh, it was funny, though, because, like, I broke my ankle, and then I, I stood up, and I was like, oh, that doesn't feel right. Let me just kind of, like, walk it off. And, like, let me see if it, I was like, oh, okay, no, no, no. <laughs> Something's not right, and so I didn't move after that. And then, but I finished my message. Um, but, yeah, I digress. Um, so that's a little bit about me, but let's get into the word here. Um, if you have your Bibles, please turn to John 21, 15 to 19. That's John 21, 15 to 19. I'll be reading from the ESV. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, Do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, Feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, Follow me. All right, let's pray. Father, I just thank you so much, Heavenly Father, for just this large group. Uh, I thank you for every single person that's here. Lord God, I thank you for the message that you've just given me as well. Uh, Lord, I just pray that I would just preach it um, with boldness and just authority, Heavenly Father. Um, I pray that for soft hearts, Heavenly Father, so um, as the word goes out, Lord God, that it would not fall, Lord God, on dry soil, but Lord, it would grow on good soil, Lord God. Um, Just thank you. Always in Jesus' name, pray. All right, so here we got the story of Peter. And Peter is actually probably one of my favorite biblical characters. Um, and in this passage, we find the point where Peter is, he, he's going from being the disciple and 
being reestablished and restored to become the Apostle Peter. From this point on, basically, Jesus is sending him out, right? And it's so powerful because if, if you know anything about Peter, Peter is the rock, right? Uh, he's the backbone of the early church, and this is where everything starts. And Peter was pivotal in the day of the Pentecost where he preached powerfully and, like, the Holy Spirit fell. See, Peter did a lot of great things in a lot, his life and accomplished so much more for the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus. But you have to remember that he didn't get there overnight, right? Peter failed in so many ways. So as we look at how Peter gets to this point, uh, we'll see a couple things. One, Peter's failures didn't frustrate or disqualify God's purpose for him. Two, that it wasn't about the end result, but rather the process that he had to go through. Okay? So the narrative of Peter is a narrative of stumbling through his relationship with Jesus. His overzealousness often getting himself in over his head. I mean, this was like a man who Jesus called Satan, right? Because he shot off his mouth too hastily. And he's, get behind me, Satan. Uh, Peter walks on the water in his zealousness, but he couldn't reach Jesus because he begins to drown. Uh, Peter falls asleep twice in the Garden of Gethsemane when Jesus specifically requested that he stay awake. And he even cuts off a guard's ear when Jesus stops, before Jesus stops him, right? When Jesus is getting captured. So anytime Peter is mentioned in the Gospels, it seems like Jesus is correcting or rebuking him or trying to save him, right? So I've titled this message, uh, The F Word. Because, <laughs> because today I'm going to talk about an F word that so often paralyzes us, and that's fear, right? <laughs> uh, yeah, the theme of fear is littered like all throughout the Bible. You see, Adam and Eve—they were afraid of, of God after eating the apple. There was Moses who feared facing Pharaoh, Joshua who feared becoming the leader of, of the Israelites after Moses, Gideon feared, feared the Midianites. Uh, Jesus even tells that parable in Matthew 25 of the talents, where the servant was afraid of the hard man, and so he he hid his talent. Um, so fear can be a powerful motivator, or it can be a powerful paralyzer. And Peter was no stranger to fear and overcoming failure. Before Jesus gets captured, he tells Peter that he will deny him three times. And Peter is vehemently opposed and probably greatly offended that Jesus would even suggest a thing. But, if any of us know the story, when the time came, as Jesus was getting beaten and accused, Peter denies Jesus three times, just as Jesus said. Uh, in the Matthew account, it's like super dramatic because there's that rooster that crows in the background. And in the movies, you always see like where they kind of like are in eye shot of each other and they lock eyes for that moment. And it's like Jesus is like, you know, say you remember that time I told you you're going to deny me three times. Um, but by the time I had hit high school, um, I had to figure out like what I want to do as a career. Okay. And so I figured I should go into like policing right, and become a police officer. Um, I think at the time I figured, hey, it's not a bad profession. Um, I get some authority, I get to bust some butts, and I get a gun, right? <laughs> in hindsight, I probably watched like too many Chow Yun Fat, like John Woo movies. And so, um, but anyway, I finally knew what I wanted to do, like work towards. So during high school, I, like, I was volunteering at like a police station. Uh, I went to university and to criminology, after finishing, finishing university, I started to apply for the police. Okay? Um, and when I say you apply for the police, it's not like you just fill out one form and hand it in. Right? 
the application process for like policing is actually like really, really long. So the point there where you hand in your application process to the point where you kind of get accepted into the police force is like a year, right? So there's 10 stages to this process. And it, it ranges from you have to attend this like career presentation. You have application forms, written exams, physical tests, health checks, three separate interviews, polygraph test, field investigation of the background information that you actually provided on your application forms. Uh, what else we got here? And then another six months of cadet training if you actually get accepted into that. Um, and so also when I say like they give you an application form, again, it's not like two, three pages. It's literally like a stack like this big. And so I remember when I got it, I was like, <laughs> how am I supposed to fill this out? And that alone took me like a couple months to fill out. Um, and so, like, yeah, the application form has all these detailed questions, and they need to find out if you're a suitable fit, because they can't just let anybody into the police force. It could be just some shady person trying to become a police officer, right? Um, so, actually, I can get in, like, some big trouble if I share de too much details about the whole policing process. They're very pretty strict on that, and since this is being recorded and probably posted online, um, I can't share too much, but... With the stages, you can find it online. So I figure that's okay to share. Um, so the long story short is I was applying, and I was in this process of becoming a police officer, and everything was looking good. I completed all my application forms. I passed the written tests. I passed the physical test and the medical test, the initial screening interview, and I was well on my way to becoming a police officer, or so I thought. Uh, I had three stages left. There was a polygraph test, and for those of you who don't know what a polygraph is, it's basically a lie detector, right? If you ever see the movies where you get hooked up and you get the things put on and like this stuff, um, that's basically what a polygraph test is, right? Um, so there was a polygraph test left. I had the medical test, a panel interview with like the top dog like police officers, and yeah, so those were the three stages that I had, had left. And so in my mind, I thought, um, all I had to really get past was this interview with like these high-level like officers, because um, the polygraph, like I was honest in my questionnaire, and really I had like, I did some bad stuff, but I wasn't like that bad where like I thought it would disqualify me from actually, you know, being a police officer, um, and so and of course the health check I was just like oh you know I'm healthy and come on right. <laughs> So, <laughs> but anyway, <laughs> without going into too much detail, um, I failed the polygraph exam, right? And so I got to the polygraph stage, and uh, this is the point where I basically got dropped from the process. Um, I won't really go into, like, why here, but the polygraph stage is, like, literally no joke. My polygraph, like, test or exam took, like, four hours. And so... Um, yeah, <laughs> I was not expecting or prepared for that test. I just, again, I went in with this mentality that, hey, I didn't really do anything that bad, right? But then when I came out, I was like, oh my gosh. <laughs> I was not expecting that. Um, so anyway, I failed at the polygraph stage, and they told me because I got to the polygraph stage and I failed, that I could never reapply, like ever. <laughs> and I was like, what are you talking about, right? And so the reason being is um, up until this point, you can always change or improve something in the stages, right? 
Um, so if you fail a written test, you can just study more and try again. Right? If you fail in the physical, you can just train and take the test again. If you fail in an interview, you can just go home, practice more, and practice your answers, and just better yourself. But if you fail the polygraph, there's actually nothing that you can improve because the test heavily depends on your past, right? And they use your past to determine your character, I guess. It kind of like shows a pattern or something, I guess, of, and that's how they base your character using your past and the polygraph test. Um, and so there's not much you can improve with your past, right? <laughs> Whatever's done is done. So if you fail the polygraph, it's not like you can go back into your past and change things, right? And so that's why they told me, like, you can't reapply. You failed at the polygraph stage. So I remember getting the phone call in the morning and hearing the lady on the other side tell me that not only were they closing my application, but that I could never apply again. Right? And so this was a blow that kind of, like, made me sick to my stomach, right? Um, you know, because at that point, my parents knew that I was, like, going for this, and my friends knew that I was going for this, and I was just like, oh, man, like, it all just kind of, like, fell, right? Um, but see, also in the Gospels, like, Peter was going hard. He was zealous for what he believed was true, which was that Jesus was the Messiah. But when Jesus was, arrest was being arrested, um, it says in John 18.10, then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. But later in the chapter, as Jesus is captured and we see a stark contrast of Peter, he's scared, right? He's covering his face uh, to the point where he actually denies Jesus, believing in Jesus or knowing Jesus three times, right? Uh, so at this point, you, you can imagine that Peter had mixed emotions of fear, feeling lost, confusion, frustration, anger, and even failure, right? And so like Peter, I didn't know what to do, right? All of a sudden, this thing that I've been pursuing for so long, it's like just taken away from me. I went from believing so fervently that this is what God wanted me to do to having this door that just closed in my face so clearly that I felt completely lost. So I, I believe so clearly that God's calling for me was to become a police officer, right? And when that didn't happen, I didn't know what to do next. And my response was to let God just do his thing. Um, I mean, I thought God wanted me to do this policing thing, and it didn't work out, so I put it back on God. I was looking for work, like, here and there, and I made my prayer. Uh, God, if it's your will, open up doors or give me a sign. Uh, I, I don't want to do anything or something if it's not you. Right? So this was my prayer for probably nearly, like, a year. And as I kept looking for work, nothing was opening up. Everything just kept closing or, like, opportunities that I thought were, I was, like, the best fit for was just for some reason, like, closing my face. And I even tried applying to, like, different policing agencies. But because I, you know, got shot down at this one policing agency, it made it, like, really difficult to get into other places. And so God was making it very clear that at, at that time that, this door was closed, right? And I didn't know if it was, like, forever or if it was just at that moment, right? Uh, but everything I was trying to do was getting shut down. And I kept praying the same prayer, God, if it's your will, uh, open up doors, because I don't want to do something if, I, if it's not your will, right? And finally, I got fed up because nothing was happening. Months, months went by, like, close, I think, like, a year went by. So I thought it would be a great idea to help God, <laughs> and I was like, 
Okay, so you're not speaking to me about anything. Maybe I'm making too broad. How about I narrow it down to three things, right? Uh, so in my hubris, thinking I can help God, I narrowed it to three choices. I was like, okay, God, I can either go back to school and learn something different, like maybe a trade or something. Um, I can go to Korea and do the whole teaching English thing. Or I can go back to the, the east side of Canada, uh, where I'd gone to college, and try and find work there. And so I prayed this new revised prayer. I had three things that God could choose from now, right? And so I was like, okay, God, which one of these three should I do? I don't want to act on anything if you're not in it because I know your way is the best way, right? So I prayed this again for months and months and months with no answer. Surprise, surprise, right? Uh, And then finally, like one night, I was praying the same prayer. Uh, God, which one of these three choices should I do? I don't want to act on anything if you're not in it because your way is the best. (laughs) And then God finally answered me, right? He finally gave me an answer. Now, I I don't really hear the voice of the Lord or anything like that. Like, I do, but, like, because we all, to a certain extent, hear the voice of the Lord, right? But, you know, I hear people who say, like, they hear, like, an audible voice. For me, it's more like a strong impression or a feeling. But when I heard this, it was very clear. And I'm not saying it was like a loud, booming voice or whatever, but it came pretty clear. And this is what he said. Eugene, all this time you've been praying to me, asking me and telling me what to do, to lead you, to do something, and to guide you. But all this time I have been waiting for you to do something. Know that I love you, and I will always be behind you to support you no matter what you do. I'm like, oh, shoot. (laughs) and as soon as I heard that, I had this instant paradigm shift. You see, like I mentioned earlier, fear can be a powerful motivator or it can be a powerful paralyzer. And in this case, it paralyzed me to be apathetic and wait for God to make choices and decisions for me. All this time, I was waiting for God to move, right? But God was waiting for me to move. And so we were kind of at this stalemate where I was like, God, tell me what to do. And he's like, well, why don't you just go do something, And so he was waiting for me to do something so he could bless me in it, essentially. And the prayer that I was praying, like, lead me in this and guide me, open up doors. I don't want to do anything unless it's, it's your will because I know your way is the best. Sounded, like, holy and great and awesome to me. But in hindsight, like, it's really a polished way of me saying, make a decision for me because I don't want to face failure again. Right? I thought... You know, God wanted me to become a police officer. But when I pursued that, it shut in my face. So obviously that wasn't God's will for me then, right? And so I was like, I came to this place where I became a parked car, right? And basically God cannot, well, not God cannot, you cannot move a parked car, right? And I had parked myself into a place of comfort and safety. I wanted to do the safe thing. And see, my policing experience had created a fear in me, and it was a fear a failure. I was believing that if I made a wrong choice or pursued the wrong thing, it was going to mess up God's plan for me. Just like how I pursued policing, and it turned out like a complete mess in my eyes. The lie that I was believing was that I made a wrong choice or decision, and it ruined or disqualified God's plan for me. But I came to the realization that, just like Peter, failures don't frustrate, ruin, or disqualify God's purpose for you. I'm going to say that again. Failures don't frustrate, ruin, or disqualify God's purpose for you. Thinking my mistakes could ruin God's plans and purposes for my life was basically putting God in a box. 
Because by thinking that my mistakes are more powerful than God, and that I'm more, basically it's saying I'm more powerful than God, right? To have the audacity to assume that my mistakes have the power to overthrow God's power is completely off, right? God doesn't get thrown off by our mistakes. When we falter and when we make mistakes, it's not like he's up in heaven throwing up his arms like, oh my gosh, I didn't see that coming, right? Or what is this guy doing, right? Or I give up. It's completely hopeless, right? You see, my God, I realize, doesn't panic. He doesn't get anxious, right? God is not a God that gets anxious. He knows everything. So you can't throw off God. So if you believe that your mistake, however big or small, is big enough to throw off God's plans and purposes for your life, then your God is way too small. God is much bigger than whatever mistakes or failures or faults that you can conjure up. Uh, Pastor Benjamin, who's the spiritual mentor of Pastor Christian at New Philadelphia Church, once said that God is the ultimate GPS system. He knows an infinite number of ways to get to a destination. And just because you make a wrong turn doesn't mean that God tells you that you're lost now, that it's over, right? Or that you missed your chance. And so just pull over and get out of the driver's seat. Um, you'll, you know, God never says, like, okay, because you screwed up, you're never going to get to the destination that he planned for you because you messed up. Right? You see, sometimes for an immature believer, you have to understand that God will often lead them by the hand. He'll give them signs. He'll put up guardrails for them so that, um, you know, they don't get lost. And it kind of helps them along the way. Right? But just like in the natural, when you reach a place of maturity, you no longer need someone to hold your hand. Right? You don't need someone to spoon feed you these things anymore. Uh, because it's expected when you reach a place of maturity, you're trusted to have learned how to be discerning. Uh, and you're trusted to make decisions by yourself. 1 Corinthians 13.11 says, When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. Right? When you reach a certain level of maturity, God will trust you with, to make decisions. And my, my prayer that sounded so holy was one that was actually coming from someone out of maturity. Right? And that's what fear does. Fear will often cause you to regress. Right? Think about like when you're scared. You often say, like, Mommy, when you're freaked out about something. Right? Uh, but God was not seeing me as a child. He was seeing me as a mature son. Right? So this was the great revelation that I had from God, right? It wasn't about waiting for God to move, but rather just making a choice, moving, doing something, and knowing that whatever I do, God is going to be covering me in that choice, right? So it took this huge burden off of me. But to be honest, although I had this sudden great revelation, I also couldn't help but feel I'd wasted so much time. And a part of me felt that had I figured this out earlier, I wouldn't have had to waste so much time. And the lie that started to creep into my head was that, God, why didn't you tell me this sooner? Right? And if, if he had did, I wouldn't have wasted all this time trying to like pray and figure this out and just sitting around doing almost nothing. Right? He could have saved me a lot of time and energy if he had just spoken to me earlier. Right? But then in that, I learned a very valuable lesson as well that God is a God of process. Okay? 
why couldn't Jesus have easily just sat down Peter and prayed for him and just instantly made him, like, wise, powerful, like, you know, a man of authority and, you know, just a man of discernment, right? You have to see that Peter had to go through failure after failure and overcome fear of disappointment, a fear of shame, and overcome a fear of failure to reach the place where he got, right? He had to go out and experience the thing in order to grow, See, if God had spoken clearly to me about what direction to take earlier, I might not have been in a place where I would have listened. Right? I was still in a place of child, childishness and would not have received the words that he, that he was going to speak. I had to reach a place where I had literally like nothing going for me to be ready to listen, right? to fully hear His voice. And you have to realize sometimes God won't speak because He knows you're not ready to listen. He's not going to speak if he knows that he's going to have to punish you for disobedience later. Right? If God tells you to do something and he knows you're not ready to listen, you know, the, thing that he's, that, the thing that's coming is going to be punishment. Right? So there are times when God's silence is not punishment, it's grace. I want you to turn to your neighbor and say that. Say, say God's silence is not punishment, it's grace. <laughs> And also, sometimes there's times when God does speak, but we already know the right answer. Or God doesn't speak, but that's because we already know the right answer. Right? Uh, but it's not until we actually experience the actual thing that we learn from it. Um, I'm sure you've all done this before, like where someone or multiple people told you something and you didn't believe it until you actually tried it for yourself. Right? Uh, so, like, a lot of people th- tell me I'm stubborn. Uh, for the record, I call it strong-minded. But whatever, <laughs> it is what it is, right? Uh, st- excuse me? <laughs> okay, so anyway, this, this strong-mindedness often causes me to doubt people unless I try for myself, right? Like, literally 50 people could have a look at something that's broken, and they'll all say that it's broken, but I'll be like, no, 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 give it here, give it here. Let me, let me look at it. And then I'll mess around with it, and then finally I'll be like, okay, it's broken. <laughs> right? See, with Jesus, he's not necessarily concerned about the end result, as he is more concerned about who you are becoming in the process, right, to get to that end result. One question I've noticed that comes up a lot is, why can't God just make it this way, or instantly make it, happen, or just force me or make me to do it, right? And even though God knows your destination and an infinite number of ways to get there, uh, what good is there if he just magically plops the thing into your lap, right? See, God doesn't operate like a magician. He's more like an architect, okay? When we ask him for patience, he doesn't just wave like his hand or a magic wand and say, ta-da, you have more patience, or if we ask him to help us grow in love for one another, he doesn't just turn on like some hose in heaven and douse us with love. Right? Although he can, don't get me wrong, uh, he won't. Because he loves us and he's not concerned about the end result. With God, the end result can be given at any time. Right? But rather, he's more like an architect. Well, he, he'll design circumstances in such a way that it will be very difficult for you not to grow. 
So if you want patience, he's going to hit you with like Murphy's Law, where everything wrong that could happen will happen. Right? Uh, he's going <laughs> to... If you want more love, he's going to bring difficult people around you. Right? And so it's all about the process with God. Um, so if it's not necessarily about the end result and more about the process, the important thing is when you're in the process, don't give up during the process, right? In the natural, we might feel like we're doing everything right. But in actuality, everything seems like it's going backwards. So fear will create this tension between truth and doubt. But God is, interesting. God is interested in the process and it's about who you're becoming. The important thing is not to give up during the process just because it's not what you, you're expecting to see. So one day I was cleaning my room and I felt like God was speaking to me because my room is like literally the size of a closet. It's tiny. I have like a bed and then my clothes. That's it, <laughs> right? Um, so there's not much space for anything, yet I somehow have a lot of stuff, Right? Um, so cleaning like my already messy room is like this huge ordeal pretty much. And I started cleaning my room and I quickly found out that in the process of moving things and trying to organize things and rearranging everything, my room became messier than it was before. And I just sat there like, oh shoot, like this is like impossible. I was kind of sitting there like defeated. And that's when God was, said something to me and it was like, Eugene, it's got to get messier before it's going to get cleaner. Or before it's going to get clean. I don't know if you can get cleaner. but <laughs> So it's got to get messier before it's going to get clean. And so sometimes before you can get things nice and tidy and organized, you have, things have to get messy and out of order. And during that process, God is molding you and shaping you. But if you let fear paralyze you from moving forward or you let fear shift you to do the safe and comfortable thing, just as it did for me, then you are stopping while everything is still a mess. And it seems even messier than it was before and it continues to stay messy. If you give up during the process, you're not giving God any room to steer you or grow you. By doing the safe and comfortable thing, you're basically parking yourself, right? The very, nature and, the very nature of a process is that there's going to be challenges and people will try and get in your way and there's moments where things just won't go right. And there's moments where things will actually get messy before they get clean, right? And there, even when we look through the Bible, there's a number of biblical giants who failed, right? Actually, a study of like pretty much every single biblical character reveals that most who made history throughout the Bible failed, right? And overcame a fear at some point. Look at Moses. He kills an Egyptian, goes into hiding, right? David commits adultery with Bathsheba. Samson breaks every single Nazarite tradition and eventually gets his hair cut, right? Abraham gets antsy and sleeps with his handmaiden, Hagar. And when he enters this one city, he offers his wife to protect himself, Lot offers his daughters to appease this angry crowd, and then later on, he eventually ends up sleeping with his daughters anyway. Right. Paul, he was a leading persecutor of Christians, and of course, you know, we look at the many failures of Peter. Right. But rather than staying in a place of defeat, in a place of darkness, 
their very failure, overcoming fear and repentance, secured them for a more ample conception of grace of God. I'm going to say that again. Okay? So rather than staying in a place of defeat, in a place of darkness, their very failure, overcoming fear and repentance, secured them for a more ample conception of the grace of God. When you know that God is a God of process, that should move you from a place of fear to a place of faith. The two cannot coexist with each other. Right? Fear by implication means that you are lacking trust. And the very foundation of faith is truth and trust. Essentially, fear is the antithesis of faith. I want us to turn to Mark chapter 4, if you have your Bibles. And we're going to read Mark chapter 4, verse 35 to 40. All right, starting from verse 35. Uh, it says, On that day, when evening had come, he said to them, Let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. And other boats were with them. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was, he being Jesus, was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. He said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? All right, so here in this story, the disciples are in a boat with Jesus, and while he's sleeping, the storm suddenly hits, right? The disciples panic and fear for their lives, keeping in mind that most of these disciples are fishermen, right? So they're used to life on the water. And so when the storm hits, it's probably not some dinky little storm that's rocking the boat a little bit. Their fear is probably really justified, right? Jesus wakes up, calms the storm, and what does he say? Why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? Right? You see, Jesus was sleeping in the boat with them. Right? And sometimes we know Jesus is there with us, but we think he's sleeping. Right? As a Christian, we know Jesus is always with us, but then we think that he's sleeping or that he's absent or that he's not even paying attention. Look at what the disciples say. Do you not care that we are perishing? And isn't that exactly what we say, like oftentimes when we're scared or when we're in fear? Or that whenever we're in trouble, we, we often say, we begin to like acknowledge God with accusations, saying, Jesus, I'm going through this. Where are you? Right? How come you're not acknowledging that I'm going through this? How come you're not helping me out of this time of hardship? Where are you? Right? Or we take the stance of like, how could, how could God let this happen? In 1 John chapter 4, 18, it says, There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. The only one perfected in love is God. Right? I want us to understand when we're in fear, it causes us to feel like God's not there. Just like these disciples in the boat. When they started to fear, they forgot that Jesus was in the boat with them. Right? And that's why we failed to see the faith side. So the enemy uses fear to control and dominate. But we have to understand that the enemy has been disarmed. 
Okay? Colossians 2.15 says, He, Jesus, disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over, over them in him. Disarm basically means the enemy has nothing in his hands to harm you. All, right? All he can do is shout accusations at you. He can whisper lies that create shame, condemnation, and fear to prevent you from moving forward. The interesting thing about humans is that we have something that no other animal has, right? And that's imagination. And so you have to understand that fear is not real. And I'm not downplaying the emotion of fear. That definitely exists, right? And that's real. But what I'm saying is, in a sense, that fear only exists in your head. It's basically in our imaginations, and so we need to cast down the parts of our imagination that exalts itself against the knowledge of the Word of God. Right? The Word says in 2 Timothy, God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power, love, and self-control. Stop putting more faith in the words of the enemy than the words of your father. So to take it back to where we started today, Jesus reestablishes Peter right, by asking him three times, Do you love me? And then Jesus tells Peter to feed his sheep and follow me. And I want you guys to catch this. Okay? To reestablish Peter, Jesus doesn't say, beg for mercy, fall on your knees, repent, or pray this prayer, or say a, a hundred Hail Marys, or whatever it might be. Right? Jesus doesn't even ask for an apology. He doesn't say, like, Peter, tell me you're sorry. <laughs> right? Jesus reestablishes Peter with basically the two greatest commandments. Feed my sheep and follow me. Right? In Mark 12, when asked what the two most important commandments was, Jesus replied, love your neighbor, or I'm sorry, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul. And two, love, the, love your neighbor as yourself. Right? So love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your mind, all your soul. Basically, follow me. Right? Two, love your neighbor as yourself. Feed my sheep. Right? Fear will cause you to distance yourself from God, but faith will always draw you closer. I'm going to end with this. I started my message with the end. Right? The process of Peter to get to where Jesus could send him. But I'll end with the beginning. Uh, open your Bibles to Luke chapter 5, please. I'm going to paraphrase this, but there's some things that I want us to look at. And so, um, In Luke chapter 5, the story goes that Jesus steps into this boat, right? So he can address a crowd from a distance. And if you look in verse 4, he tells the fishermen to push out a bit further and drop their nets. Right? Surprise, surprise. Guess who owns the boat? It's Peter, yeah. Okay, so at the time, his name was Simon, right? But this is Peter. And it was Peter who grumbles and protests at Jesus' request, saying, Master, in verse 5, Master, we have toiled all night and took nothing. But nonetheless, he relents and drops his nets. And as they pull up the nets, there's so many fish that the nets begin to rip 
and another boat comes to try and help them, and they start filling up those boats. But there's so much fish that the, the boats begin to sink, right? Both boats begin to sink. And out of awe and reverence in Peter, Peter's response in verse 10 is, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. And then Jesus' response to this is, Do not be afraid. From now on, you'll be catchers of men. You see, when Peter got a revelation of who Jesus was, he thought the appropriate response was to distance himself. Right? Verse 8, depart from me. Why? Right? Because I'm a sinful man. And yes, sin has no business with holiness. And in accordance to the law, the appropriate response of the unclean is to separate yourself from the clean. But what was Jesus' response? Verse 10, do not be afraid. From now on, you'll be, catchers, you'll be catching men. And so from that moment on, was Peter catching men right away? Right. No, it took failure and disappointment and overcoming fear to reach the place where he was ready to be sent. Right. Don't let fear paralyze you. You see, when Jesus says, from now on, you'll be catching men, that speaks of a greater destiny over Peter. But watch this. In verse 11, what do they do? What was the fishermen's response to Jesus' call? They left everything and followed him. Right? They didn't make excuses. They didn't reject the calling or the identity that Jesus had just spoken over them. Right? They weren't like, Psh, Jesus, didn't you just hear that I'm a sinful man? You know, I'm just a fisherman. I'm uneducated. I'm inexperienced. I'm powerless. Right? Excuses after excuses that they could have used. But no, Jesus tells them not to be afraid and calls them forth into a greater destiny and they chose to follow him, leaving the old self behind. See, when we choose to follow Jesus, he brings us into a greater purpose and a greater destiny. God could have easily made the whole policing thing happen for me, right? Uh, you know, he could have opened up that door and I'm sure I, I would have done a great job at it and I would have been blessed, right? But he tells me, from now on, you'll be catching men. Right, calling me to a greater purpose, calling me to a greater destiny of what I thought for myself. Right? I never would have came to Korea if, if I had started working as a police officer, you know, experienced missions, been able to stand before you guys and just sow into you know, my familia or you know, the people that I've met here. Right? And so, like I said, he could have opened that door for policing and it probably would have been great for me, but at the same time, he brought me here to Korea. Right? Um, and it's all part of the process. And see, so f- for some of you, Jesus is saying, go out, go out into the deep with me and put out your nets. But we're making excuses, right? Just like Peter did. I read my Bible and I caught nothing. I listened to my leaders and I caught nothing. I prayed and I caught nothing. And see, don't let fear stop you from going out into the deep and casting your nets. It's a process. And just like God told me, He loves you. And He will always be with, with you and behind you to support you. You cannot fail when you move in a place of faith. And if you feel like you failed, don't tell Jesus to depart from you. Right? Don't fear judgment, shame, and condemnation because Jesus is saying, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid because he's calling you to a greater purpose and destiny, right? You are all fishers of men. 
So drop your nets and follow. Let's pray.